0: Hello, American government civics. Uh, welcome to your unit two test review. This is all about the constitution. Um, there's a lot to cover in this and I am trying to limit myself to 30 minutes. And this is some stuff that I do like to talk about. So uh, I wanna try and get it knocked out uh, within 30 minutes. So let's get moving uh, pretty quickly. So first off is the amendments uh, on your study guide. And the you will need to know some of the specifics about the amendments. So be sure uh, you're paying attention and you remember you know, the first amendment says this, The Second Amendment says that, Sixth Amendment says this, so on and so forth. So just keep that in mind. So uh, let's get moving. The First Amendment has five freedoms you need to know. Freedom of speech, religion, press, then the right to assemble, and the right to petition the government. So let's break this down real quick. Uh, The freedom of speech, uh, this is something that has really kind of morphed into something different than what it was probably designed for. Freedom of speech was to protect our rights and abilities to criticize the government which is something we still have. But people today want to take the freedom of speech and say whatever they want to. Um, and that's, we, we you know, we, we can't really truly say whatever we want to sometimes. Um, there are rules and limits, uh, and just because you have freedom of speech doesn't mean you should say it or that it should be said. Um, but um, it's it's gone all kinds of different directions. We also have symbolic speech nowadays. You know, burning the flag is, is, is legal from the Supreme Court's uh, decisions to allow that. So freedom of speech uh, has kind of morphed into something beyond what it was originally designed for. Freedom of religion, uh, what allows you to worship as you want to. Uh, And there's two key clauses you have to know for the freedom of religion. Uh, And the the first one, and probably the one, I think the one that's on the test is the establishment clause. The establishment clause does two things. It says that the government will not create a state-sponsored religion. So there will never be a first church in the United States or a First church, or church of Georgia that you're forced to go to. Uh, the government cannot do that, all right? The second thing it does is says that the uh, government, and Congress specifically, will not create laws that favor one religion over the other. So there's not supposed to be a favorite religion of the government. And this is where you get the separation of church and state, which affects us here at school. Um, and this is what was used for uh, the ingle versus Vital case uh, that got rid of the prayer school. All right. Uh, the next one for that for the religion is the free exercise clause, and the free exercise clause is what allows you to worship as you want to, uh, as long as you're not doing illegal things. Uh, so you're not allowed to to practice a religion that has illegal things in it. So sorry. Um, so yeah, free religion, <clears throat> free of press. Uh, once again, was designed to allow the press to criticize the government. Uh, they're allowed to write things. There's a little bit of um some things that are kind of off off limits with with national security issues and things like that but for the most part the, the press is allowed to write what they want to all right uh freedom of assembly you're allowed to assemble uh you know as you want to the key part of that that part of the uh, amendment is that you have uh to remain peaceful you know peaceful protests are perf- perfectly legal once they turn violent though they are going to be uh, that's when they can be dispersed and things like that and then you have the right to petition the government um so if you really feel strongly about something, maybe you go around uh, getting signatures. On, uh, let's say, you know, the school week's too long. We really want to go from five days in school. To, let's go to three days. And so we go, down, go around and petition people uh, to, to sign our petition saying that this is, is bad for us. Then we could potentially take it to the government and they might have to address it. Okay. The second amendment is the right to bear arms pretty simple. I'm not going to spend too much time on this uh, as we could probably spend the whole podcast talking about the right bear arms, but you're allowed to have weapons and things like that. Number three, no quartering troops doesn't really apply to us anymore. Uh, there's not going to be a, a military person show up to your house probably uh, that needs to stay, but the British used to do that. Number four is no unlawful search and seizures. So the government cannot just come into your house and search you. They cannot just stop your car and search you. Uh, they have to have one of three things. They have to either have a warrant, which is going to be where you're a suspect. And they're looking for a very specific piece of evidence. Uh, they have to have probable cause, which is where they are somewhere they're allowed to be, um, and they can you know, see or hear uh, some kind of issue. So, if you get pulled over and you know you roll down the window, and the cop gets a contact high from all the smoke billowing out of your your window, um, that could be probable cause to search your car. If they're you know on the the third story. Uh, looking at a window on a ladder in your backyard and they see you in the bathroom smoking a joint, that's not probable cause. It was, why were they on your ladder, right? Or why were they on the ladder looking in your third story window? Uh, That's not somewhere they're supposed to be. And then finally, your permission. You can always get permission, all right? Uh, And then there's something on there called the exclusionary rule. This just says that illegally obtained evidence cannot be used against you. So if uh, they do find some evidence uh, and they did not have a warrant or they did not have probable cause or they did not have your permission, it can potentially be kicked out of court. All right. Uh, Number five is the rights of the accused. Uh, Hopefully you never are accused of anything, but if you are, you have a couple of rights. First off, no double jeopardy. The government cannot continue to to try you and try you and try you until they get an outcome that they want. Uh, So once you're found not guilty, uh, as far as that level of government goes, uh, you will not be charged again. You can't be forced to testify against yourself. This is why you see sometimes in movies and TV shows, someone getting on the stand and saying, hey, I plead the fifth, I plead the fifth. Uh, That is that. that right that you have to not incriminate yourself. This is also why when you are arrested, don't be arrested, but if you ever are, um, they're going to read you those rights, the Miranda rights that says you have the right to remain silent. All right, so uh, I would, if you ever are arrested, don't talk to them, ask for a lawyer, and then be quiet. And then finally, one that's kind of randomly thrown in there is eminent domain, and this allows the government to take your property. Now, they're not going to come take your house because they, they like the look of your house. But if they need it to expand a road or to put something somewhere, they could potentially come in and uh, make you an offer. All right. Um, it's going to be a fair market value. And if push comes to shove, if you're fighting it, you, know, you can go to court uh, and they may take it. Uh, so it's, please don't think that I'm, I'm trying to tell you that the government is going to come in and take all of your property. That's not how it works, uh, but if they need it, you know, they have to pay you for it, but um, they there's a good chance they'll get it if they really, really need it. Number six is the right to fair and speedy trial. You uh, have the right to a lawyer. So you will be given a lawyer no matter what. Uh, That's why I said number five, ask for a lawyer. You're going to be given a public trial. Remember the British used to take us elsewhere uh, for trials. You get the right to a jury and you have a right to confront witnesses. Number seven is a right to a jury in a civil case. So a civil case is not a criminal case. A criminal case is where you've done something wrong and the government is trying to punish you. A civil case is where uh, you and a friend or a neighbor or somebody have a disagreement and it can't be settled between the two of you. And so you need a court to to, to come in and kind of settle it for you. This is where uh, people get sued and things like that. So uh, you have a right to a jury trial in those cases. No cruel and unusual punishments for number eight. Uh, The death penalty is always the question here uh, about the no cruel and unusual punishments, but uh the other part of this is you know they can't put you into prison and let's say you you stole a a big queue from quick trip and the quick trip attendant chased you down tackled you caught you and hold you until the police get there and you're arrested and you're going to get 20 years to life for stealing a big queue you know that's just not going to happen so um, the punishment has to fit the crime number nine and ten are similar uh, the rights of the citizens and the rights of the states Uh, as long as the constitution does not specifically deny something, then typically it's left to the citizens or it's left to the states. So, you know, there's nowhere in the Constitution that says we're allowed to travel as citizens from state to state or even travel abroad. But we can because of the Ninth Amendment, because as long as it doesn't specifically say we can't travel, then we're allowed to. And the same rule applies for the states. As long as it doesn't specifically say the states can't do it, so the only people that can declare war is the National Congress. So Georgia can't go off and declare war on somebody. Um, But as long as it doesn't specifically deny something, uh, then we're allowed to do it. All right. Next up is the principles and clauses of the Constitution. You've got limited government, so there should be restraints on our government, uh, and that's where these the ten amendments we just covered comes from. You know, the fourth, fifth, sixth, seventh, and eighth are all rights of the accused. Uh, from the time you're a suspect, the time you're you're know, punished, you have rights. The government cannot come in and just you know, overstep their bounds uh, with unlawful searches and things like that. That's limited government. All right. Uh, The rule of law just means that the the laws apply to every person, whether they wrote the laws or whether they're just a regular citizen. Um, Everybody is subject to the law. Federalism is the sharing of power between a national level and state level. So you have people up in D.C. that make rules and laws and can, can kind of tell us what to do. You also have the state of Georgia that can tell us what to do. We can go further down Uh, into the local levels, here at school, at home with your parents, uh, and all those sorts of things, but we'll stop at the federal and state level. So it's the sharing of power between multiple levels of government. All right, the separation of powers and checks and balances, this is something that people get confused all the time. So the separation of powers, if you can go back to unit one, we talked about this fellow named Montesquieu, and Montesquieu wrote during a time that a king made all the rules, enforced all the rules, judged all the rules. All right. He he wrote about how that's not how a government should operate. You should have multiple levels, multiple multiple layers of the the government or multiple people having these powers. You shouldn't have one person that has all those powers. And so that's why we have the separation of powers. That's why we have the branches of government. You have the legislative branch, which is going to write the laws. You have the executive branch, which is going to enforce them. And you have the um, judicial branch that's going to judge the laws. So we don't want to have one person with all those powers. Checks and balances are just the uh, kind of the watchdog function that every branch or each branch has over the other. So we know hopefully that the president can veto uh, a law from Congress. We know that you know, the Supreme Court can declare a law unconstitutional. Those are all checks and balances. Uh, the Congress can impeach and kick out a president or a federal official. All right. That's a check and balance. Popular sovereignty. Uh, this is an idea that all decisions of government are supposed to flow through us. Okay. Us meaning the citizens. So popular sovereignty is the, the you know, going back to the social contract theory with John Locke, where you know, we, all the government decisions are supposed to flow through us. If you think back to U.S. history, you had bleeding Kansas. If you remember that, Uh, the people were supposed to decide about being a free state or a slave state. And they kept on saying popular sovereignty. Let the people decide. Let the people make decisions. Judicial review, just talked about that real quick. That's where the Supreme Court can declare a rule or law as uh, unconstitutional. That's a big power. Uh, But it doesn't have to be challenged. It cannot just be, oh, let's review this law, this rule, whatever it might be. Uh, It has to be something that gets challenged uh, for the courts to take a look at it. All right, some clauses, necessary and proper clause, or sometimes called the elastic clause. This allows Congress, this is specific to Congress, it allows Congress to stretch their powers. So um, there was this idea that, hey, not everything can be addressed in the Constitution. So sometimes Congress is going to have to kind of stretch out Uh, and do some things that are beyond what's in the Constitution. And that's where this elastic clause comes from. So my favorite example is from U.S. history, and that is the National Bank. If you think back to the U.S. history days, um, back in the 1820s and 1830s, Congress set about to create a national bank, and they did. And there was the question of, is this thing legal? Well, the Supreme Court eventually is going to answer that when Maryland tried to tax the, the Supreme, I'm not the Supreme Court, but the National Bank out of existence, and they refuse to pay. So there's a court case called McCulloch versus Maryland, and in that case, the Supreme Court answered the question. Yes, Congress can use the necessary and proper clause to create a National Bank because of the things that's in the Constitution. So Congress has the ability to coin money. Congress has the ability to tax. They have the right to control commerce. All those things can be read and interpreted and we can stretch their power to create a national bank because the national bank goes with those things that they have that are listed in the Constitution. All right, the Commerce Clause. uh, This is another power of Congress. This allows them to control uh, commerce, and it's specific the interstate commerce, all right, so from state to state, versus intra-state where um, that is within the state. So, you know, stuff going from Atlanta to Valdosta, that's not a federal issue, but once it crosses the state lines, uh, that becomes a federal issue. Uh, but this is, was in response to the Articles Confederation and the weaknesses of the Articles where the you know, Congress could not control that sort of stuff and the, the states were taxing each other and doing all sorts of things. The Supremacy Clause. The Supremacy Clause uh, is uh article uh, of the Constitution and it just says that um, the Constitution is number one. So when we're talking about, hey, rules, laws, and things like that, everything's got to be constitutional and the constitution takes precedent over everything else then comes federal laws all right and then comes um treaties and we start going down the list so real quick example here you know, hopefully uh you understand this uh there's states out there that have marijuana legalized okay colorado uh, washington and a couple other places in theory based on the supremacy clause the federal government could come in at any time and shut them down and say, hey, you're breaking federal law. You can't do that uh, based on the supremacy clause. All right. Uh, They haven't yet. And uh, and that's a discussion for a different time. Uh, Last two things, privileges and immunities and full faith and credit. These both deal with the states uh, and state to state relationships. So privileges and immunities, this is just the fact that uh, there's not going to be special rules and laws made for citizens of different states so if you travel to a different state you're going to be treated as a citizen of the united states and not um have to follow some special law you know, because you go on vacation to, to disney world in florida and uh you know oh well there's special laws for georgia people down here uh, you can only travel you know 40 miles per hour while citizens of florida can go 60 miles per hour or things like that um, so you're going to have all the same rights and rules and your driver's license is going to be honored and, and things like that. And then full faith and credit is things like contracts and uh, some licenses and um, other things are going to be honored from state to state. And I'm a great example of this. Um, I'm from Florida and I got married for a first time down in Florida. And then I moved to Georgia with her. Okay. Uh, I did not have to get remarried here in Georgia. They just honored the the decision and the the, the the marriage from florida then i got divorced from her here in georgia i didn't have to go down to florida and do anything it was just hey they're divorced because they got divorced in georgia so honoring the court decisions the rulings contracts and, and things like that from state to state and this is why same-sex marriage was an issue uh back when the court had to rule back in 2014 in obergefell versus hodges because some states were allowing same-sex marriages other states were not not honoring it so i think hawaii was one of the first states to allow same-sex marriages and so uh, a same-sex couple could go out there, get married, come back to Georgia, and they're like, no, you're not married, uh, and it not count. So they were breaking the full faith of credit clause. All right. Uh, compromises of the Constitutional Convention. There's three that you need to know. The first one is the Great Compromise. Uh, it might be called the Connecticut Compromise, but, uh, you know, when I was learning about it, it was always the Great Compromise, so that's what I'll always call it. So this is the one that combined the Virginia Plan and the New Jersey Plan. Remember, uh, Virginia Plan and here's the problem, okay? We, we had a plan for a one-house legislature. Uh, today, it seems so easy because we have two houses, and that's just what we're used to, but back then, that was kind of unheard of, and so uh, we had the Virginia plan, which had population was going to be based on population. Representation was going to be based on population, excuse me, and then the small state, said so that's not fair, and so they came up with the New Jersey plan where everything's equal, so there was a lot of arguing going back and forth about uh, the two plans. What should we do? Eventually, they decided on Uh, let's combine them. And so that's why we have a House of Representatives today, which is based on population, and we have a Senate, which is based on equality. Next up is the three-fifths compromise. The three-fifths compromise dealt with the fact uh, about Congress again and uh, taxes, okay? Uh, So population was going to count for two things. It was going to count for uh, the representation you got in the House, and it was also going to count for your uh, taxes, how much you paid in taxes as a state. And so the South they wanted to have the their slave population count for representation purposes, but then when it came to the question of taxes, like no, they don't count for that. So they wanted it both ways. The North was the same way, but opposite. They wanted the slave population to count for tax purposes, but not to count for uh, representation purposes. So they eventually settled on the three-fifths compromise, where they're going to count three-fifths of the slave population. And then the Commerce Compromise deals with the slave trade. Um, People in Congress did not want—I mean, at the Constitution Commission—did not want uh, the federal government to be able to regulate the slave trade, and the North said, "No, you should be able to." And so, eventually, they settled on the federal government staying out of the, the importation importation of slaves until eighteen o eight, I think it was. It was a twenty-year time frame uh, where the federal government cannot uh, mess with it, and so um, they were eventually they eventually got that that that, that right in eighteen o eight, I think it was. All right, going to the back side of your. Uh, Instead of you've got the powers, expressed, delegated, implied, concurrent, and reserved. So expressed powers, uh, those are the enumerated or the ones that are written. You can go to the Constitution and you can see them. You can go to Article 2, excuse me, Article 1, uh, I think it's Section 2, somewhere there, and you can see where it says all the things that Congress can do with money. It says in there that they are allowed to coin money. They are the only ones that are allowed to coin money. That's an expressed power. It's written in the constitution. Okay. Uh delegated powers are those powers that are given to the branches, the specific powers. So sometimes don't get confused with these, <coughs> with the uh the uh the expressed versus the delegated powers. <coughs> Excuse me. Um they are uh just hey, Congress can do this, the president can do this, um, and so they are delegated to them. They're, they go kind of so they coincide with the express powers, to an extent. Then you have the implied powers. These are those powers that uh, the necessary and proper clause brings out where the, the government can kind of stretch their power a little bit. Um, so it doesn't necessarily say in the Constitution that uh, the president can do this. It doesn't say in the Constitution that Congress can do that, but it's implied if you read it this way or that, all right? Uh, then you've got the concurrent powers. The concurrent powers, those are powers shared between the federal level and the state level. Uh, one of the worst powers here is the ability to tax us. Both the, the federal and state governments can tax us. Uh, not very nice of them, but it's something they can do. So had you won, there was a billion dollar lottery uh, a couple of years ago now. Had you won that, the first check you'd have written would have been to the federal government for your federal income taxes, around $350 million. and Then you'd have written the second check to the state of Georgia uh, for the state taxes. Uh, now you can still live, off of that, uh, you know, what you won, but uh, it wouldn't be as much. And then reserve powers, those are powers left to the state, okay? And this comes from the 10th Amendment and the whole thing we said, where as long as the Constitution does not specifically deny it, uh, the power is left to the state. So those are the reserve powers. All right, the amendment process. Um, The amendment process, there are a a couple things to understand here. First off, it is federalism because it is national level to state level. And then it's also going to be um, purely legislative. There's no president. The president cannot you know, veto an amendment. The president could, in theory, uh, recommend an amendment, but uh, it has to be go through Congress, okay? And then there's no judicial branch here either because the judicial branch cannot declare an amendment unconstitutional because once it's amended to the Constitution, it is a part of the Constitution. But you need to really know the process. So let's talk about that real quick. The amendment process, there's a two-step process. Uh, First at the national level and then to the state level, okay? The national level has to propose an amendment. So Congress or a national convention. We've never done a national convention. We've only ever done Congress because they're already in place. Congress proposes an amendment, and then two-thirds of both houses have to vote on it to move it forward. So let's say that I am in Congress, and you are all Congress people, I stand up and say, I propose an amendment to pick one time period. We don't go back and forth with our time, no more daylight savings times and all those sorts of things. We're just going to have one time throughout America. Okay. Um, If two thirds of you voted on it said yes, then it would be approved and it would go to the next level. Okay. The same thing could happen at the the national convention, but once again, we've never done the national convention. We only ever use Congress. Once we have proposed it and approved it, by two-thirds in Congress, it then goes to the state legislatures, all right? Uh, and so it goes down to Atlanta. It would go down to Tallahassee in Florida, Birmingham in Alabama, and that's about the extent of my capital knowledge. Um, but it would go there, and the states would vote on it. Three-fourths of the states, 38 of the states, have to approve it for it to become an amendment, righty. Uh, there's also state conventions, which we've done only once, and that was to repeal the uh, the Prohibition Amendment. So, most more often than not, it goes from the national congress to the state congresses and they vote on it and approve it. We only had 27 done and it's a pretty high bar. All right. We don't want uh, just any old amendment passing. We want it to be uh, serious and um, needed so that it, uh, you know, it doesn't, um, we don't just change the Constitution to change the Constitution. All right. The Articles of Confederation, the weaknesses, the big ones uh, no military, no executive not able to control commerce you know the states can do whatever they wanted to uh, with commerce they could tax each other they can make agreements with other countries um, <clears throat> So those are the kind of the big weaknesses there's there's others the, the, the articles was really uh, a poor government. you know the, the states back then were very scared of having a strong executive and turning it into a king and so they really wanted to maintain the state power and have a weak central government. All right. Uh, the separation powers I've already done. I'm not sure why I got on there twice. I so apologize for that. The Federalists versus the Anti-Federalists, <clears throat> the big one here. The Federalists believed in a strong central government. They believed in the Constitution, uh, and that's what they were fighting for. The Anti-Federalists, they were for the state powers, the states retaining powers, and having a weak central government. So that's the big difference between the two. Uh, The Federalist Papers were obviously written by the Federalists in support of the Constitution. They wanted the Constitution to be ratified and signed off on, and so they wrote these papers uh, in order to um, support and try and convince people that, hey, this central government is what we need. Brutus was the anti-Federalist response to the Federalist Papers and just wrote about how a strong central government was not what we needed. We needed to leave power in the hands of the state, and they listed some of the problems. one good thing that comes out of this rivalry, the Federalists versus the Anti-Federalists, is the Bill of Rights. This is what became the big hang-up between the two and what eventually got the Constitution signed off on was the Bill of Rights. The Anti-Federalists said, we need it. And the, the Federalists said, well, you know, the government will just honor those rights. So I'm kind of glad the Anti-Federalists fought for that, uh, to have some of our rights written down in the Constitution, things the government cannot take away from us. Uh, last thing for the, this unit is the Electoral College. The Electoral College is how we actually elect our president. So when you go vote, uh, yes, you're voting for your president, but the Electoral College will actually do the picking of the president. This was created as kind of a fail-safe because the the people that wrote the Constitution didn't really trust us uh, to make good choices when it comes to um, picking our president and things like that. So uh, they had this in place. If, you know, people picked uh, Chris Daniels, hey, uh, that's a horrible choice for president. Uh, Let's vote for somebody else. So they have that, they were supposed to have that ability. Um, So people get a little upset. They think, well, my vote, vote doesn't count. But, you know, your person has to win your state to get those electoral votes. And the electoral votes are based on the population and the representation you have in Congress. So Georgia has 16 because we have 14 representatives and two uh, senators. All right. Um, And so it's important for your person to win the state of Georgia uh, because they need those 16 votes, just like it's important for people to win uh, California because there's 55 electoral votes. Texas has 38 so on and so forth. You got to get 270 in the Electoral College. and then we get on to Unit 1 stuff. Uh, so there are some questions that you've seen before. Uh, Confederation, uh, remember the Articles of Confederation is this. And this is where um, you have a weak central government and strong state governments. All right. So there was a fear, there was a scare. We were, we were scared of people becoming too powerful. And so we wanted to keep the central government very weak. When we have the Articles of Confederation, and this goes for anywhere—it's not just the Articles of Confederation, but anywhere around the world—when um, they have a confederation, it's going to be a weak central government and strong states. Uh, democracy. Remember, that's how we pick our, our president. Um, that is, there's a lot of our our choices in there in a democracy. You know, we get to pick our representatives who we think is going to best represent us. All right, versus a monarch. You know, that's where there's one person. Making decisions. There is no people making choices and decisions. It's all about what the, uh, the monarch says. And then the oligarchy an oligarchy is where you have um, a group of people running things. All right. So, a group of people, a small group of people running things. Um, so, yeah, small group. Okay. Uh, as always, you know, if you have questions, ask your teacher. Uh, if you want to interact with me, uh, feel free to on social media. You can jump on uh, the school account and follow uh, and interact with chhsgov_civics underscore uh, civics. I'll get any kind of messages, any kind of tweets there, and you can ask questions, uh, and I will respond uh, to you as quickly as I possibly can. Guys, uh, best of luck on your test this week. I uh, hope you have a good week and uh, talk to you when we get to Unit 3. All right, bye-bye.